The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Good morning. I invite you to open up your Bibles if you have them with you this morning to the book of Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, the text is also in the worship guide that you received when you came in this morning as we continue through our series that we've been doing for over a month now, looking at the book of Philippians. One of, um, one of the favorite things when I was at college, I went to college in downtown Chicago, and one of the cool things about where I was at school at is oftentimes visiting NBA teams who were in Chicago to play against the Bulls would often practice at the college where I went. And so I had some cool experiences getting to meet and see different NBA players. And I'll re- I always will remember one instance of that. I was, um, I was at the gym. I was upstairs and I was going to lift weights. I'm sure when you saw me this morning, the first thing you thought is that guy lifts weights. That's exactly what you thought. So, so I was going up there and before I was going to lift, there was a, a track that went above the basketball courts, an indoor track because it's Chicago. So it's called an indoor track. And I went in, you know, I'll just run for, you know, five, 10 minutes just to kind of get the blood pumping before I go to lift weights. And so I open the door. There's three basketball courts on the very first court by where I walk into. I'm up, you know, on the elevated track. There's one guy there playing basketball and we give each other the, the bro greeting, the little, the this. Right, like when you walk out, like every man knows, like that's, that's just what you do when you see another man and you should acknowledge him, but you don't know what to do. You just give him like the nod. And so I give him that and then I start to go for a run and then I'm like, wait a second, that, that's not a college student. And so I start to, start to run and I'm looking back and I notice very quickly that the guy who was shooting in the gym was a guy by the name of Gilbert Arenas who was a three-time NBA All-Star and for a couple of years was one of the top two or three scorers in the entire NBA. He was actually drafted by the Warriors and played here locally for many years. And, and suddenly when I was running, I was no longer warming up, but the whole time I'm running looking like this, like, what is, what is he doing, right? So I, I grew up playing basketball. I played it in high school. I love basketball. I love watching the NBA. And so I wanted to see what, what does one of the top scorers in the NBA do at practice, right? What sets him apart Besides, obviously, he's like 6'5 and very athletic. Like, well, what does he do that helps him play so well? And what did he do the entire time that I was there running? He shot free throws. What did I have to do my very first day of junior high basketball practice when I was 12? Shoot free throws. He wasn't doing anything extraordinary, but what he was doing was what all great athletes do, and they were going back to the very basics of what makes them good at something. Right, that you're never too advanced, you're never too beyond something. They need to go back and be reminded and exercise the very basics of things. And it's with that idea in mind of going back to the basics of which Paul writes this passage this morning in Philippians. He's been encouraging this church in their walk with Jesus to continue on to the life that God has for them to shine within the world. And now in verse three, he kind of changes course to go back to remind them of the basics of what we believe, the basics of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for this church and for those of us who are Christians, the good news of what Jesus has done for us. Let's start today in verse one. He says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So what he's saying is, what you're about to hear, this isn't new. This is what I've told you over and over again when I've been to you. This is what I communicate regularly, but it's important, these basic things. So I'm going to communicate it again 
to you. Starting this verse two. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Today in this passage, we're going to look at three basics of the gospel message. And the first is this, is that we need to recognize the emptiness of our efforts. The first basic of the gospel that that Paul is re-emphasizing here to the church is to recognize the emptiness of our own human efforts to achieve, to have anything before God. He's writing this to them apparently because there's been people who've been contradicting this message, this message of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And in verse two, he he has some sharp words for them, right? To look out for the dogs, the evildoers, those who mutilate the flesh, that kind of threefold description of them. Most likely who these people are are what is often called Judaizers who had gone into the church and said, yes, you can believe in Jesus, but you need to follow these works. You need to add these things on to your salvation for it to truly be complete. And he has these very strong words for them. And, and think back, we, we oftentimes interpret the words as they would in our culture. In verse two, if someone calls you a dog, sometimes that could be a good thing, depending on your context. But most of the time, that's probably not a good thing. And for them, this would have come across very strongly. See, in their time and in their culture, dog was what a Jewish person called a Gentile. That was a, a slang term, a derogatory term for a Gentile person. They weren't of the Jewish race, they were a dog because they weren't Jews. And so what does he say referring to people who are of ethnic, of, who are ethnically Jews who are trying to say you need to do these things? He's saying, they're the dogs. Watch out for them. That phrase in verse three would have been a sharp statement towards this audience for we are the circumcision. Circumcision was the outward sign of Jewish pride, of though it stood them apart. And he's saying, no, those who are truly of the people of God are not those who have this physical thing about them, but it's the circumcision of the heart. Now, Paul here is not being against the Jewish people. He's not anti-Semitic. In fact, in his other writings, he says, I would do anything for my Jewish brothers and sisters to recognize who Jesus is. He's not at all saying that. But what he's saying is they they are taking pride, not in what Jesus has done for them, but in who they are and what they've done. It says, we're not like that. We, he says in verse three, we we are of the spirit of God. We glory in Christ Jesus. And unlike these other people, we put no confidence in the flesh, in our own human accomplishments and what we've done. And then he kind of pauses and he dives in on that last phrase. We put no confidence in the flesh, right? And he's saying, So, you know, if anyone, Philippian church, if anyone would have confidence in what they've done and who they are as having some standing before God, Paul's like, it's it's me. He's like, you think your religious resume is impressive? And Paul's like, I got you beat. My religious resume is better than any other religious resume out there. And to start with, he gives kind of four things that are true of him by birth that he is circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. These would have all been things of pride of being a Jewish man that he would have had that were true about him, that he could have had confidence because all these things were true of him. 
Not only does he say, I could take pride in these four things that are true of me from birth. He's saying, I, I have these other things that I've had from my life, from my own human efforts. Notice the first, as to the law, as to following the regulations laid out, a Pharisee, meaning that he had memorized scripture. He followed the law. He was a very righteous, a very good person, a very moral person. He was a rule follower. As to zeal, as to passion, a persecutor of the church, He's saying, I held on to these faiths so strongly that those who disagreed with me, I was having them arrested and even tried and killed because their faith disagreed with me. I was not without passion. I had more passion than anyone. As to this third criteria, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, Paul is not saying that he was morally perfect. But what he's saying is if you could find someone who kept all of the regulations and restrictions I was the best rule-keeping person you've ever met in your life. He's saying, I, of anyone who could say, have confidence in what they've done and how they are born, I could do it. But we are the people who have no confidence in the flesh. See, what Paul is highlighting here is he introduces the gospel again to this church. He's highlighting three things that don't save you. Three things that will not bring about your salvation. And the first is this, being born to a certain family doesn't save you. Being born to a certain family doesn't save you. He's saying, well, you're of Jewish background. Congratulations. So am I. That doesn't save you. And, it, it, you, you know, sometimes I've, I've asked people before, well, tell me, tell me about your, your walk with God, your religious beliefs. Are you a Christian? And their response is often like, well, you know, my, my grandma took me to church when I was young, to which I just want to be like, congratulations. Like what difference does that make in your life today? And you'll see this ever increasing. We, we've said this many times before, but we in the Bay Area live in the most de-churched area in the United States. Meaning that so often if you ask someone about their spiritual life, what they'll do is point back to their childhood. Most likely, well, my mom was a Christian or my grandma took me somewhere. Or I went to church with my aunt and uncle occasionally. And what we're saying is, well, you know, because I'm associated with someone who knows Jesus, I'm okay. Right, Because they're a part of the family, so I'm, I'm good. But, but Paul here clearly says it doesn't matter what family you were born into. That has no status or right before God. Now, some of us, especially this is a truth that we need to grasp if you are here and you are a younger person today. Because it can be easy to assume that, you know what, I'm good with Jesus because, man, my parents go to this church. My parents know Jesus. My parents talk about Jesus. I'm cool with God. But there comes a point where every single one of us have to make that faith our own. And it's not good enough just for our parents or for our grandparents or for people in our family to believe in Jesus, to have faith. It needs to be something that is true of our very lives as well. You know, it's not Paul's main point, but we can certainly get to that there as well from his thing. Being born to a certain family doesn't save you. By God's grace, for a lot of us, we may say, you know, being born to a certain family doesn't condemn you either. And for some of you, you're like, praise God for that because the family I was born into, we don't have religious pride in my family, that's for sure. But that doesn't condemn you before God either. Just as much as being born into a very church-going, moral, godly family doesn't save you by itself, being born into a family not like that, that doesn't condemn you either. Our, our family background does not save us, or does it, nor does it condemn us. So being born to a certain family doesn't save you. The second thing that he highlights here that doesn't save you is being a good person doesn't save you. Being a good 
person doesn't save you. Now, there's, I think sometimes we talk about this and there's kind of two categories of people who say I'm a good person. I'm not talking here just about the people who are like, you know, I don't need God. I'm a good person. Have you ever met someone like that? I always want to be like, I don't think you're actually as good as you think you are, but okay. Like, I don't need God. I'm fine on my own. This is the kind of person who would be at church who would be practicing religious practices, who would proclaim to have some sort of faith, what they're truly resting on is their own rule following that they do. Who is maybe here at church today, maybe serving, maybe giving. Why? Because they think that, hey, if I go to church, God owes me something. If I give money, that's how God will grant me salvation. If I do these religiously upright and good looking things to others, then that's where my salvation will come from. And in certain traditions, we've kind of created sets of rules of what good Christians look like. And there are many people here, I'm sure, who are great rule followers, who are are able to follow those things, but it's not being a good person. It's not going through religious rituals that saves us. Paul's like, listen, you wanna talk about religious observance. He's like, I have you beat. I was blameless. I did it all and I put no confidence in it. That's not where salvation rests. So being a good person doesn't save you. The third thing that doesn't save us is sincerity. Sincerity in what you believe doesn't save you or passion for what you believe doesn't save you. Again, Paul's like, hey, as to zeal, as to passion, no one had me beat. Paul was not wishy-washy in his faith what he believed before he came to Jesus. He was zealous. He was passionate about it. And you'll hear this more and more in our day today, that people will be like, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you really believe it and you're passionate and it's what you think is true. Your truth is your truth. Mine is mine. And just believe your truth. And as long as you're sincere and that's good for you, you you can have that and that's okay. But here's the problem with that. To sincerely believe a lie is still believe a lie. It doesn't matter how sincere you are or not, you're still believing in something false that is not true. Let me, let me put it this way. Have you ever um, driven somewhere late at night and it was kind of in a new area and you thought you were headed in one direction? You got on the highway, you're like, all right, headed north, be home in 20 minutes. And like after you, you sincerely thought I'm headed the right way and then suddenly you realized I'm headed south, not north. It didn't matter how much you believed you were headed the right direction. It didn't matter the sincerity in your heart on which you thought you were headed. If you're going the wrong way, you're going the wrong way. And it doesn't matter if you're sincere or not. And Paul's saying, listen, you can be passionate. I was passionate about this, but I was passionate about the wrong thing. I was sincerely holding to the wrong thing. And now I put no confidence in it because that's not what saves us. See, before, and the, the Bible so often does this, before we see what God has done for us in Jesus, we need to be reminded of what we are and who we are apart from And he's saying, listen, there's no one that can do enough. There's no work. There's no effort that could be put enough. There's no family born into that saves you. None of us can save ourselves. We need to realize the emptiness of our efforts. The second truth of the gospel basic here is seen in verses seven to eight. It says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The second basic of the gospel message is to see the value of Jesus. To see the value, the worth, the worthiness of Jesus and who he is. He says here, and these are strong words in verse seven, eight. I I count it as loss. All those things, great. It's loss in comparison with Jesus. In verse eight, for his sake, I've suffered a loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. The King James here is a good translation. It says, I count them as dung in comparison. I think Bible translators sometimes feel a little like we can't be in junior high because little translation would be like, I count them as poop. He's like, yeah, I think of, think of the most vile thing. He's like, that's what all of my human accomplishments and efforts are in comparison with the value of Jesus. It's nothing compared to him. See, we sometimes skip over this part when we think about the basics of the gospel. But by skipping over understanding the worthiness and worth of Jesus, we don't set ourselves up as followers of Jesus for long-term growth and discipleship. See, the reason, the primary motivation for coming to Jesus is because we see his worth, his value, and everything in life pales in comparison to him. And and we 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 worth him, we value him, excuse me, above all else. But the problem is too many people, including lots of Christians, don't value Jesus as the greatest thing in their life. They use Jesus as a means to an end. Right? They use Jesus as a means to an end. And they simply want Jesus as long as he serves their purposes. You know, and sometimes we, we talk about this, and I think we have this kind of faith in our lives because this is hard to understand, valuing Jesus above everything else, especially if we were raised in church and you became a Christian when you were young. Right? Like imagine you're, you're young and you know, Jesus is seen sometimes as a means to an end. It's like, well, do you want to go to hell when you die? And you're like, uh, no, that doesn't sound like fun. And then they light a bar beyond fire. Like you want to spend eternity in fire? And you're like, no, no, I don't want that. Well, believe in Jesus. And you're like, okay, I'll believe. Like, I, I don't want to burn forever, right? And so Jesus is just our means to escape hell. Or we think Jesus is my means to have blessing in life. And if I, if I believe in Jesus, God will bless me. And so therefore I'll believe in Jesus because God will bless me. We simply use Jesus as a means to our own end. You know, where do we so often see this in, in our world today is people using the, something for a means to their own end personally. We so often see this in how people are in relationships today. This is why marriage is in such crisis in our world because we are just hardwired and our culture tells us just use people for yourself and when they don't serve your purposes, move on to someone else. What happens if you're in a relationship with someone and your primary reason, you may be wouldn't express this, but your primary reason in their relationship is for your own physical satisfaction. That's the driver for why you're in the relationship. What happens when suddenly they don't meet your physical needs or you find someone else who you think could meet, meet your physical needs more? You don't treasure this person. You just value them as a means to an end. And at some point you will dispose of them to find someone who meets your needs better. What happens if you're in a relationship and the, the, this person is serving to meet simply your emotional needs? And, and your, their value is, hey, listen, I have some emotional needs. You meet them. That's the value you are to me. What happens when suddenly they have needs and you have to sacrifice and you have to give things up? You know what's easy to do? Leave them and find someone else. 
The point is this, when we use people to meet our emotional needs, when we use Jesus to meet our needs, rather than treasure him for who he truly is, we will come to a crossroads in life. Because here's the thing, if you follow Jesus for long enough, and oftentimes this isn't very long at all, he will ask you to do things that you don't want to do. He will ask you to go places. He will ask you to follow him. He will ask you to trust him with things that you don't want to give up that part of your life to Jesus. You don't want him to ask you to do that, but he will. He'll say, hey, trust me with your finances. Make this decision. Trust me in the obedience in this area that isn't what you want. What happens when we suddenly are called out and Jesus is not just a means to an end? If he's not the greatest worth and treasure, suddenly our lives are in crisis because we don't know what it looks like to follow after Jesus. The solution for this is to treasure Jesus for who he truly is. To see the worthiness and the worth of Jesus and be captivated by him. Jesus told this story to help understand the value of himself in the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 13, it's a one one verse parable. He said this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. I remember many years ago seeing a video and it was kind of a, they were called modern parables. They would take the parables of Jesus and kind of say like, hey, if Jesus were alive and and on earth today, this is kind of probably how he would tell this parable in our culture and understanding. And I loved how they did this one. The, The setting was there was a realtor and he was trying to sell a piece of land's that was in a dumpy part of town. It was a dumpy set of property and no one would buy this. And he was stuck with it. He couldn't get anyone to buy this place. But one time when he was showing a client around, he realized like his foot got stuck in something. And he looked down and realized that this piece of property was sitting on an oil field. And so he took some stuff, covered it up, dismissed his client, runs home to his wife. And is like, honey, we have to sell the house. We have to sell the car. We're going to buy this dumpy piece of land that I can't sell, right? And his wife's like, uh, you're crazy. What are you talking about? He's like, no, 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 you don't get it. There's oil there. It will be worth it. And he does this in joy, sells everything. Why? Because he found something of great treasure. See, when our treasure, when our worth is on Jesus, when we value him, like how Paul talks about here as the center of our lives, when God asks us to give up things for him, we do so not begrudgingly, but with joy. Because we discover that he is the greatest treasure of all. And there is nothing in our lives that's too great to give up for him when he is what we hold closest and dearest into our lives. See, if we feel the Christian life is too demanding, that God is asking us to give up too much for him, we haven't truly seen the surpassing worth of Jesus. We're using Jesus as a means to our own ends, but when we are captivated by who Jesus is, we'll be ready to count everything as rubbish that we would gain Christ. And so Paul says we need to be so captivated by who Jesus is. And then continues into verse nine, says this. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. 
The third basic of the gospel message here is to place your faith in Jesus. The third basic of the gospel message, when we realize our emptiness, when we see the worth of Jesus, then our call, our response is for us to place our faith in Jesus. As we've already seen in this book, if you've been with us, when Paul talks about salvation, he often talks about it in threefold elements, the past, the present, and the future. He says, when you think of what Jesus has done for us, when we place our faith with him in our past, our sin is forgiven and we're accounted by God as righteous. We are justified by him. In the present, we ask God to sanctify us. That's the language in verse 10 that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul here isn't saying that like Jesus's death is lacking, but what he's saying is suffering is often the way to unlock godliness in our lives. He's saying, even if it causes me suffering, I want that because that will cause me to be more like Jesus. This idea of sanctification of growth in the present, then with this future idea in mind. Right, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. It's not of works. He just said that in verse nine, and we'll go back there in a second. But this glorification, looking forward to that future day, the resurrection of the dead, the great hope for all of us who are in Jesus that we will be united with him again. But salvation is all about, and this verse does it so well, salvation is all about being united to Christ and what benefits the believer because of what Jesus has done for us. Notice again, verse eight ends, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Be found in him, being united to Jesus. And what happens when we are united to Jesus? He says that we don't have a righteousness of our own that comes from the law or from any following or any human efforts, but we have a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, Paul here is addressing what we call the doctrine of justification, that we can, as sinners, be made right before God. And when we think about justification, there's two really key elements, the doctrine of justification that are so important for us to understand. The first is this, is that Jesus takes on our sin. Jesus pays for our sin. I'm in a small group that I'm helping lead and we're, we're doing an Easter study right now. And I love what, what the pastor said is leading. He said, when you think of Easter and the events of Good Friday, think of these words always, in my place. That everything that happened to Jesus, we, myself, you deserved to be there. That you deserved to hang on the cross. You deserved to be put under trial. That was you who deserved it. But Jesus went in my place place. This idea of Jesus coming as a substitute is foreshadowed and seen throughout the whole scripture. This is why annually on the day of atonement in the Old Testament, the priests would lay their hands on a goat and send him out because he would bear the sin of all of the people. And on the cross, Jesus bore all of your sin of my sin, and he paid for it there by dying in our place for our sin on the cross. And here's the thing, because Jesus is righteous, because of his perfect life, he's the only one that could do that. You could volunteer to die for the sin of the world, but you're not qualified because you're not perfect. And only Jesus was. 
And so in his death and justification, God is now seeing us and he says, yes, Jesus has taken your place on the cross. You deserved it, but through faith, you can be justified believing that Jesus takes your place. But there's a second element of justification. And that's what Paul focuses on here, especially in verse nine, is that first Jesus takes our place, but then secondly, we in return receive the righteousness of Jesus credited to our account in our lives. In Jesus, we become the very righteousness of God when we believe in him and his sacrifice for us. It's not that God just forgives your sin and then sees you as you are. He forgives your sin. And when he looks at you in your life, it's as if he's looking at the very life of Jesus because it's his righteousness that is now given to you. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. He says this, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that our sin was placed on Jesus so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the very righteousness of God. So get this, God does not just forgive your sin when you place your faith in him. He then credits Jesus's perfection and righteousness to your account. So he sees you the very way he looks at his own son as totally perfect. There was a, a document many years ago called the Heidelberg Catechism. It was used as a teaching tool. And there's a question in there. It's question 60. I believe this was 100, 500 or so years ago this was written. But I love how it put it. The question is this, how can someone be declared righteous before God? How can we be righteous before God? And this is the answer. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, although my conscience accused me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God, I have never kept any of them, and I am still prone always to all evil. Yet God, without any merit of mine, of his mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I had never committed nor had any sin and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me, if only I accept such with a believing heart. That all of that can be true for us if only I place my faith in it. If only I accept it with a believing heart. See, justification refers to our, our legal standing before God. Are we innocent or are we guilty? And so think of, think of yourself standing in a courtroom. Your life is on trial God is the judge. The question is, are you perfect? The verdict's gonna be no, by the way, just in case you're wondering, all right? Because Paul's like, hey, listen, you want a good rap sheet? Here's mine, and I'm not perfect. Paul's like, my righteousness outdoes yours. I have gotten way more an impressive resume than anyone. He's like, it doesn't mean anything. So here's the thing, you're in a courtroom. The judge looks at you and declares you guilty. Right? Being justified doesn't mean that God sees you and says innocent. Being justified is God sees you, how you've lived your life and says, that person is guilty. I am perfect, I am holy, and that person is not. They have sinned, they are filled with sin, and they're continuing to sin. They are in sin, they are guilty. But instead of you having to go and pay the price for your guilt, because you are guilty, the judge goes, instead, I have my son who's going to come and pay that price for you. That he himself brings about the thing that will satisfy that guilt so that it's not that you're innocent, but you are guilty and your guilt is huge. But the judge provides someone to take your place for the penalty for your sin, which you deserve. And then 
the judge goes, and also you're not just free to go on your way. I now want to adopt you into my family. My son is taking your place and now you're a part of my family now as well. That's what God offers to us in Jesus. If only we have faith in him. If only we don't trust in our own efforts, our own goodness, the own family that we were born into, whatever it may be that you think has some status before God, if we place that aside and said, trust in Jesus, trust that because of what he has done for us, simply by having faith, believing in his death, his resurrection from the cross, that we can be true, that we can have the righteousness of God in our lives today. Our band's going to come and we're gonna sing a song in just a moment, but I wanna ask you as we close today, question, where, where is your faith today? Where is your confidence in? Is your confidence in, well, I was raised in this family, I went to church this many times as a kid? Is your confidence in your own efforts? Well, I'm a good person, I do this, I do that, I, I have some accomplishment there. Is your confidence in your sincerity? Well, I'm really passionate about what I do and, and what I'm trying. Or is your confidence in Jesus? You're saying, I, I have no confidence in myself, my accomplishments, but it's all because of what Jesus has done for me. It's all because of the cross, all because of his work that I can have any good in my life. As we close, we're gonna pray together. And I just wanna invite you, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I wanna invite you to do so today. God has done all he could do. Jesus has paid it all. He came, he loved you. Why would a judge send his son to die for a guilty person? Because he loves you. He sent his son who loves you, who died for you, who has done all that he can do to take the place for your sin. All you have to do is believe in him, to place your faith in what he's done for you. So let's bow our heads and close our eyes together. And if today you want to place your faith in Jesus, would you just pray this prayer along with me? Jesus, I recognize that I am a sinner. I recognize the shortcomings of my own efforts to please you. place my faith today in Jesus. That he came and he died in my place. That on the cross, he bore my sin that I was guilty of. Today, I want to receive that gift of salvation. I want to receive the righteousness of Jesus into my life. I want to place my faith in you today. God, we marvel at what you have done for us in Jesus. That you've demonstrated your love that while we were still sinners, Jesus came and died for us in our place. God, may the basics of the gospel never cease to grab hold of our hearts and cause us to respond in worship to you. 
in joyfully giving up all we have that we too would gain Christ. We thank you for Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.